Today's scripture comes from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 20. But first, let us pray for illumination. As we gather here today, gracious God, help us to fully understand your gospel, that we may boldly proclaim your words of truth, righteousness, and love. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, the words that may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The word of the Lord. I am preaching today. <laughs> Thank you, Jake. For several weeks, we've been uh, meditating on Paul's description of the armor of God uh, from Ephesians 6. And we've seen that each piece of the armor that Paul describes is associated with a different essential of the Christian life. Uh, to put on this armor means to be ready for spiritual battle, to, to be intentional about using the resources of the gospel uh, to stand firm. And we do this as we, as we seek truth, as we find our righteousness in Christ, as we believe and proclaim the, the gospel of peace, as we trust in God's promises. And today, we come to the helmet of salvation. And as we, as we think about this today, I want to go back uh, to our, our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 25. It's, it's on page 10. And, and we're going to take a close look at these verses from Isaiah, which offer us a, a prophetic picture of salvation. And there's a lot for us to learn uh, from these verses, especially in the context of this Advent season. So let me consider it under three headings. The tension of Advent, the promise of Advent, and the assurance of Advent. The tension of Advent in Isaiah 25, verses 6 and 7, the promise of Advent in verse 8, and the assurance of Advent in verse 9. And first, the, the tension of Advent. This, this tension, the tension of Advent, is conveyed by Isaiah in these verses. These are just a, a few short verses out of the book, but they're a 
a culmination of a theme of judgment and salvation that has been building in the book of Isaiah up to this point. And the focus here is on Mount Zion, the, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and the prophet offers a vision of what God will do on this mountain for the whole world. He looks forward to a day when God will act to set the world right and to bring comfort to all those who are suffering. And in these verses, uh, there are two images that overlap, and, and we're meant to see them together. Let me, let me show you what I mean. The first image is in verse 6. It's of a feast hosted by God himself. The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Notice the description of, of this meal. The table is set with rich food, well-aged wine, meat full of marrow. These are not everyday foods, especially in the ancient world. Rich food here is literally oily food or, or fatty food. You should think of large cuts of meat and, and vats of wine. This is a luxurious meal, the kind of meal that would have been reserved for the most special occasions, you know, a wedding or a victory or a homecoming. It's food for a happy occasion. In other words, the Lord is putting on a party here. That's what the picture is. But this is also what makes the second image uh, so surprising. And we see it in verse 7. And notice verse 7 also mentions this mountain. So it's, it's a picture that overlaps with verse 6. Both are happening in the same place. But now we discover something new. We see the guests who are coming to the party. And we'll come back in a minute to what God does here, the, the swallowing up of something. But for now, just focus on how the people are dressed. Verse 7 talks about the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. There's something surprising here. The Lord is offering a joyful feast of celebration for all peoples, and the guests, all those peoples who are showing up, they show, they show up dressed for a funeral. That's what this covering is that they have on. It's a funeral shroud. Other translations, the NIV, the NRSV, they translate this as shroud uh, to, to get that across. It's a shroud that covers all peoples. They're wearing veils. They're in mourning and, and, and they're in disgrace. So, so what does it mean to, to read these verses together? As you think about the picture, you, you, you have to imagine God setting this beautiful table. The celebration is about to begin. And the people of the world show up. This is the, the tension that we've been saying is at the heart of this Advent season. On the one hand, uh, God promises a, a beautiful salvation. We hear the message to rejoice, to be glad. But on the other hand, 
there's the reality of grief and pain. And, and for many of you, I know that this, this reality captures your own experience in these weeks, and maybe in a special way in, in this time of the year. You carry with you today to uh, the service your heartaches and, and your struggles. The Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer captures this tension very well in a letter he wrote from prison uh, to his parents in 1943. He had been arrested earlier that year for participating in a resistance movement against Hitler, and he was put in a prison that would sometimes come under the threat of bombing from the Allied forces. And he wrote to his parents uh, these words, which you'll find on page four of your bulletin today, along with the image of a, a painting to which he refers by Albrecht Altdorfer. And he wrote this. Although I am not at all clear about whether or how letters get to you, I want to write on this afternoon of Advent Sunday. Remember the Altdorfer Christmas scene in which the Holy Family is depicted with the manger amidst the ruins of a broken down house? It is really contemporary. We can and should also celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us. I think of you as you now sit together with the children and with all the Advent decorations as in earlier years you did with us. We must do all this even more intensively because we do not know how much longer we have. Bonhoeffer wrote from a war zone and somehow he was able to say, we should celebrate Christmas despite the ruins around us, even more intensively because we do not know how much longer we have. How was he able to say something like this? The answer is he, he held the tension of Advent. He didn't pretend like everything was okay and, and act cheery because that's what people expect at Christmas. He didn't turn from the suffering and the brokenness and the pain of the world. But he also had a real hope in the coming of Christ. The message of Christmas taught Bonhoeffer that if the Son of God was born and placed in a manger, then there is no suffering or need for which he does not have compassion. And we can join him in that compassion for all people. Because of what Christ has done, Christians never have to decide who is worthy of salvation. None of us are worthy, but Jesus came to us anyway. This brings us to our second point, the, the promise of Advent. We, we also see this promise in Isaiah 25. We've said there's a, there's a, a tension here between a banquet and a funeral. Swallows the funeral. Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It's such an extraordinary portrayal of God. He swallows up death. He swallows up the suffering. Think about what's happening here. 
God offers the richest of food to others. He sets the table for them. But he himself swallows up the things that are bitter, the pain and the mourning and the death. Everything that the people bring to the banquet, God takes into himself, everything that's sad and wrong and broken, and he himself wipes away the tears and and takes away the disgrace so that the people may enjoy the banquet that he has prepared. There are three things about this picture that uh, teach us uh, something about a a Christian understanding of, of salvation. First, we we see that it's personal. God doesn't offer salvation from a distance. He gets close and and, and personal to bring redemption. He's laying the table. He's wiping tears off of faces. This is what Christians believe about God and, and, and believe that it comes to its fullest expression in the incarnation, in the person of Jesus. God comes in the flesh God touches lepers. God eats with sinners. This is the God that Christians worship. Second, uh, this salvation is is joyful. We've already talked about the central metaphor here of the, the feast. And it's not surprising that feasting is one of the main things that Jesus was known for. His opponents called him a glutton and a drunkard because they expected the Messiah to do a lot more fasting. Jesus was always feasting with people. His first miracle was at a wedding reception where he turns 150 gallons of water into well-aged wine. He depicts God's kingdom as a great banquet. In Matthew 8, uh, verse 11, he says, Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So we, hear, we, we see here a, a salvation that's personal and joyful. And third, uh, salvation is sacrificial. When Jesus feasted with his disciples on the night before he was betrayed, he reimagined the Jewish feast of Passover as a meal for his disciples to remember his grace. And he said that it all pointed to his own sacrifice. In this feast, Uh, He said he's not only the one putting on the banquet, he's also the food on the table. He's the bread of life. At the Lord's Supper, we remember that on the mountain of Calvary, God accomplished what Isaiah foresaw. He swallowed up death. He took the veil of human violence and grief and sin and allowed us to do our worst to him. His body was broken. His blood was shed. He went into the grave. But then three days later, he was raised to give us a hope for the future. And he promises to come again and to make all things new. If you believe that you have a salvation like this, you have a hope that can stand firm in any circumstances. And yet, I know that some people might respond, maybe some of you, uh, that sounds like such a nice idea. But you can't really believe that Jesus is going to come again. Isn't this simply a crutch uh, for people who can't face, face up to the world as it is? 
In response, let me um, offer uh, an example, address this, and using an example uh, from the theologian Howard Thurman and uh, his experience in the black church. In a famous lecture Thurman gave in 1947 at Harvard, he addressed songs uh, arising out of the slave experience, songs like Swing Low, Sweet Chariot, A Balm in Gilead. And these had sometimes been criticized by sophisticated scholars as too otherworldly, especially with their references to a literal heaven, to, to crowns and thorns and the robes that singers would wear when, when Jesus returned. And the argument was that songs like this made people attend to their repression in the present. And in his lecture, Thurman argued that on the contrary, Christian beliefs about the new heavens and the new earth and the judgment day, in fact, deepened the African-American capacity to endure injustice. And here's what he said. The facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the, absor the absorption of suffering. It taught people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment with all its cruelty could not crush. These songs enabled them to reject annihilation and to affirm a terrible right to live. In his book, uh, Making Sense of God, Tim Keller quotes this lecture by Thurman, and he points out that there were many in Thurman's Harvard-educated secular audience who believed that while the images in the spirituals were wonderful symbols, you couldn't take the idea that Jesus was really going to return and judge the world literally. And Thurman addressed this directly by arguing that if you can't take it literally, it's not a real hope. And Keller offers a, a thought experiment to show why this is so. He says, imagine what it would be like to sit down with a group of 19th century slaves and say, uh, there will never be a judgment day in which wrongdoing will be put right. There is no future world in life in which your desires will be satisfied. This life is all there is. When you die, you simply cease to exist. Our only real hope for a better world lies in improved social policy. Now with these things in mind, go out there, keep your head high, and live a life of courage and love. Don't give in to despair. Is that real hope for suffering people? The Christian hope is very different. Not just improved social policy, though that's important. It's more than optimism that things will get better. It's a promise. A, a promise based on God's word. For the Lord has spoken. Did you notice that little line in our reading from Isaiah 25? For the Lord has spoken. This brings us to our last point today, the assurance of Advent. How can we know that God will keep his promise? That he will really swallow up death forever? 
For Christians, the assurance that these things are true does not come from our, our feelings, our sense of optimism. It comes because we can see what God has already done in the person and work of Jesus in history. At this table, Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood given for you. If you want assurance that God keeps his promises, don't look to yourself and your feelings, which are always changing with the ups and downs of life. Instead, look to Christ and what he has accomplished. Look at his service, his suffering, his sacrifice. These are what will assure you that God really is who he claims to be and that you can trust him for the future. We see this in Isaiah 25 too, in verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The people see what God has done, and they break out into spontaneous praise. And the prophet says that one day, uh, people will see God, and they will recognize him as the one who saves, uh, who saves through his own suffering, self-sacrificial love. Let me close by reminding us that we've been talking in these weeks about the whole armor of God. When you put on salvation as a helmet, you apply the, the hope of salvation to your own life. When doubts arise, you gird up your loins with the belt of truth in a, in a culture that defines success based on your achievements. Uh, you put on the, the breastplate of righteousness with confidence that you have the gift of Christ's own righteousness covering you. In a world where it seems that the only response to violence is more violence, uh, you're given the, gospel, the, the shoes of the gospel of peace to follow Christ into every place of brokenness. When you feel attacked, you can raise the shield of faith against despair. In every way, this armor points you to the Savior who has promised never to leave you nor to forsake you. Uh, he is faithful, and so you can rely on him in every situation. Let me end with this. In The Lord of the Rings, some of you may remember the wizard Gandalf leads the Fellowship of the Ring through the deep, dark caverns of Moriah. Moria. Uh, they, they meet evil creatures there, orcs and trolls. But the worst comes in the form of this ancient demon called a Balrog. You remember the Balrog? It's this flaming, horrible embodiment of evil with a whip of fire. And in my favorite scene in the movie, Gandalf stands on a bridge and he shouts at the Balrog, you shall not pass, and he breaks the bridge beneath it. But then as the Balrog falls into the pit, it manages to wrap its whip around Gandalf's legs and, and pull him in, and he hangs on the edge of the abyss for that moment, and then he lets go and he tells Frodo, fly, you fool. Gandalf defeats the Balrog, but it costs him his life. And surprisingly, 
This is not the end for Gandalf. Later, Gandalf returns, but he's no longer Gandalf the Grey. Now he's Gandalf the White. He appears to the hobbit Sam, and, and here's what Tolkien writes in the book. Sam lay back and stared with open mouth, and for a moment, between bewilderment and great joy, he could not answer. At last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. This is the good news, friends. Everything sad is going to come untrue because our Savior has returned from the dead. A great shadow has departed. Jesus is risen, and he has promised he will come again. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Father God, we pray today for eyes to see you as you really are in your overflowing love and, and care for us. Help us to believe that you have set us free from all sin and darkness. You have empowered us to resist evil. You have promised to wipe away the tears from all faces. And so we trust in you today uh, because of what you've done for us in the person and work of your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.